So here we are in the Gospel of Luke, and the Son of God has been born into the world, and he's come to be a light of revelation of who God really is. So what kind of person is he? We only get a glimpse of his development as a young boy, just one glimpse. And that shows us a heart devoted to God like no other. There are other devoted people that we're going to read about in this section of Scripture. And it kind of shows you where you can arrive if you pursue God and you battle yourself and you discipline yourself for the purpose of holiness, and you know, you get to that old person, and there's nobody here like that. But you know, somebody who's been walking with the Lord for a long time, you think, wow. But this child is way beyond that. He is the very zeal of God. And this is the person who guarantees that our salvation is going to be complete and full. A person whose heart is completely devoted to God. So I'm reading a couple of verses here in Luke 2, starting from verse 21, if you want to read along with me. It says, And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of Moses, or the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So here is the process of Jesus being devoted as holy to the Lord as required by the law. Circumcision is the sign of being in covenant relationship with God. In Genesis 17, God gave to Abraham this sign of his covenant. He says, this is for you and all of your descendants, that they would be God's people, that he would be their God, and that they would inherit the land he would give them. So this is the sign of relationship and inheritance. It's what you can have. God says, this is yours. Now, the symbolism to this is that this part of the male body, which is naturally insensitive 
and also naturally unclean, is cut away. And that leaves this area highly sensitive and automatically clean because there's no place for uncleanness to build up. Now, this is a symbol of what God will do in a person's life. And that is cutting away the insensitivity of the heart that is natural. That is just me and God. As long as he stays far away, we're cool. And our lives, because of it, become naturally unclean. That's what we do. And what God does is a cutting away of the hardness of our heart that makes us naturally clean. This is all part of his salvation. And Paul refers to this as the circumcision of Christ done without hands, which means it's perfect. This is what God does. And when he cuts away the hardness of our heart, then we're sensitive to God, and we don't want to be out of fellowship with him. We hate it. And even if we fall into sin or make a mistake, the Holy Spirit lets us know that wasn't cool. And, you know, we're so frustrated and, and disappointed about that. We want to get right with God, and we cannot live in uncleanness and enjoy it. You know, even if we're trapped in a sin, we can't get out of it, we don't know how to get out, we say, God, get me out of this, and we're still not out of it, but we cannot stand living in that. It's just an interesting thing. And it drives us to God and to trust in Jesus to cleanse us. It's an amazing thing that God does, but that is the reality of which this is the symbol. And Paul points out in Galatians chapter 5 that the one who receives circumcision is under obligation to fulfill the covenant of God. And see, that's what Jesus came to do, to fulfill all the obedience that is required by the law and to fulfill all all the punishment for not obeying. So Jesus fulfills everything in the law, the requirement of obedience and the punishment. That's what he came to do. And now he's being obligated to do that. And then Mary and Joseph present Jesus holy to God in the temple. And we kind of fast forward 33 days there. We'll get to that in a minute. Because in Exodus chapter 13, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of men and beast, it belongs to me. 
So it's involved with how God redeemed Israel from Egypt. He says to Pharaoh, I'm going to pass through the land and the firstborn in Egypt is going to die. This is the plague that would catapult Israel out of Egypt. Egypt would kick Israel out, say, leave, go right now. And God says to Israel, this is what you're going to do so that none of your firstborn die. You're going to take that lamb and you're going to kill it and you're going to paint the blood on the doorposts and the lintel of your house. You are to stay inside the house. Roast the lamb whole and eat it. Leave none of it till the morning. Stay in the house all night. And when the angel who destroys passes over your house, he's going to see the blood on the doorposts and the lintel, and he will pass over you. That's where the word Passover comes from. So, all the firstborn in Israel are to be holy to the Lord. They belong to him because he protected all of them in that night. Now, the firstborn son was to be without blemish, like a priest. And the interesting thing there in the first five books of the Bible is that God took the tribe of Levi to be his priests. And he took them instead of all the firstborn. And there's a symbol happening there that God's priest is like a firstborn. Holy to the Lord, his priest, but also a firstborn. And see, that is describing who Jesus is. Devoted to the Lord, the firstborn, and the great high priest. Now, to present Jesus or any firstborn to the Lord as holy meant that he had to be redeemed. And the price was five silver shekels. Silver in the Bible is always a metal that symbolizes redemption. And so God redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt to be his slaves. Slaves of righteousness, holiness, purity, a people for his own will. He saves them out of degrading slavery to his service, which is life and peace. Now that's a very good will, to enslave a people to righteousness and holiness. That's eternal life right there. So they have presented Jesus to the Lord as holy. They have paid the five silver shekels for his redemption. 
And then they offered these sacrifices for Mary's purification. So the laws on circumcision and these purification for birth are both found in Leviticus chapter 12. And so if a woman bears a son, she'll be, she shall be unclean for seven days as in the days of her customary impurity, like she's having her period. The son is circumcised on the eighth day, then she is unclean for another 33 days if it's a boy, 66 days if it's a girl. Don't ask me why. We're moving along. After that, she offers the sacrifice of a one-year lamb and a pigeon or turtle dove. And that accomplishes her purification from childbirth. Now, if she can't afford the lamb, she can offer another turtle dove or pigeon. And you notice in verse 24, she offered two turtle doves. And what that means is they could not afford a lamb for her purification. Now, you marvel that they even made the five silver shekels for the redemption of their firstborn son. But they had to do that. And I wonder if they didn't put everything they had into the redemption and say, that's it, we don't have any more. So now we're going to offer the second sacrifice, and that's cool. God is okay with that. Now, you know, Mary offering these sacrifices is acknowledging that she requires this cleansing that the law says she does. Jesus didn't require that. It's not for the child that's born. It's for the mother. So she offered those sacrifices for her cleansing. So now... The parents have fully devoted their firstborn son to the Lord. And they have fulfilled all the requirements of the law. As far as that outward symbolism of the law, it's fulfilled. It's carried out. Jesus has been devoted to God to fulfill his purposes. Now, while they're in the temple, they encounter two people whose hearts are completely devoted to God. And the first of these is Simeon. Verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, 
Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now, the word that describes Simeon here is devout. He's righteous, and that's according to the law. He carries out those those requirements blamelessly. Now, you could do that even if your heart wasn't into it. You could fulfill the requirements of the law. But devout goes further than an outward requirement. And it literally means someone who has properly received someone or something because they know the value of it. Someone who has properly received someone or something because they know the value of it. So Simeon rightly estimates who God is. And he knows his value. He is God, the Almighty, the God of Israel, his God. He appreciates that. And because he knows God's value, he has properly received God. You know, he's received God's word because he's looking for the consolation of Israel. And that refers to the Messiah. And that's a focus for him. That's what Israel needs. That's what he needs. And it's kind of like what it says in Hebrews 11, how he saw the promise from afar and embraced it. He has received this promise for himself and says, that's what I need, that's what we need. The fulfillment of all God's promises For Israel, salvation, redemption, freedom from all their enemies, eternal life, yes. And you notice that the Holy Spirit is upon him. He has received God upon him to live in him. Here's a man upon whom the Spirit rests, is pleased to dwell with. Isn't that amazing? Can two walk together unless they're agreed? And Simeon receives who God is. He says, I am your bond slave. May it be done to me according to your will. He is living at the pleasure of God. Now, the Holy Spirit gives that heightened knowledge and understanding 
to Simeon. And this promise comes to him. You will not die before you see what it is you're waiting for and longing for. You want the consolation of Israel. You're going to see him in your lifetime while you're still alive. And God is faithful to his promise. So on this day, the Holy Spirit says to Simeon, go to the temple. And Simeon doesn't push back and say, why? I'm not done with breakfast yet. I got to change the chariot. My whole, my whole day is booked. Are you kidding? He doesn't push back. He says, yes, Lord. And he sees this couple offering up a child to the Lord, the firstborn. And the Holy Spirit says, that's him right there. So he's never met this couple they don't know who he is, and he walks over to them and says, I hope, in a very grandfatherly way, may I? And they go, uh, okay. He picks up this child. Can you imagine? And says, oh, Lord. Now you're letting your servant depart in peace. All the fulfillment of all the promises and the covenants and the sacrifices and the law is right here in my arms. Wow. We're talking, how do you measure this joy? What a moment. The fulfillment Now, you know, this also has a message that he is about to die. How would you like to receive that message? We know people who are receiving diagnoses of cancer. And you know, it kind of draws you up short, and your heart starts going, because you know, man, I could die. And everybody knows I am going to die, but we don't think about it. But when you start thinking about dying, don't you get afraid? Don't you kind of go, now listen, we all believe in God in this place, right? We've all trusted in Jesus, but you still hear about it, and you still go, what is Simeon doing? Oh, you are letting your servant depart in peace. Is Simeon looking forward to death? No, he is looking forward to life. Because he is going to be raised from the dead. Here's the guarantee right in his arms. The Messiah is 
here. That is the fulfillment. I am going to be raised from the dead. I am not going to see death and the pit and destruction and corruption and judgment and condemnation and hell. He says, I am coming to you. And you notice here that he understands that God is interested in saving the whole world. Yes, of course, he's going to save the Jewish people, but also he's going to be a light for the Gentiles. You know, he's been reading his Bible, and it clearly says, it is too small a thing for me to raise you up to save the people. I'm going to make you a salvation for the whole earth. And Simeon's okay with that. Man, if God wants to do that, it's fine with me. This is amazing. But you notice, along with salvation, redemption, consolation, light, there's also judgment. See, many are going to rise with this child, and many are going to fall. That's kind of the hard part, isn't it? He says to Mary, a sword is going to pierce your soul. You're going to experience pain and suffering because of this child. And many will rise or fall because the thoughts of many hearts are going to be revealed. Isn't that interesting? Now, thoughts are not visible. You can be thinking about anything this morning, and we wouldn't know about it. You could be thinking about what's for lunch. I have to go to the bathroom. How long is that guy going to be talking? What am I doing here? They got me again. You could be thinking about anything. Who's going to win? You know? At the game that I'm not watching because I'm here. Okay, I can go on and on about this, but it is crazy. Nobody can see your thoughts. But what happens when they're revealed and everybody can see them? See, then it's not a question of what does it look like on the outside? Here we are in church and we're dressed nice and we're sitting nice and we're yelling and screaming and we even put something in the offering bucket. And we're doing a lot more for God than many people. Looks great. What does the inside look like? What about the thoughts that nobody can see? You can fulfill the outer requirement of the law and still violate it in your thoughts. You can be bitter, you can hate somebody, you can be angry, you can sin freely with your thoughts. You know, when the outside looks good and the heart is exactly the opposite, that's called hypocrisy.
But see, these thoughts are going to be revealed. And all the inward sin and rebellion against God is going to come right out in the open. And it's especially going to come out at the Messiah. There are people who are going to be, as far as outward obedience, they're going to be ticking all the boxes. I do this and this and this and this and this and this. I know I'm righteous. But they're going to hate Jesus. And that's going to come out. And they're going to kill him. They're going to hate him because he's good. And he reveals everybody who looks good to still be a sinner, despite looking good. And that's going to just make some people really angry. Like, don't tell me I'm not good. Because I can prove I'm good. So don't you tell me that. <laughs> Do you know I've met people like that? Big guys. And I didn't have the guts to say, or does it... <laughs> It doesn't mean anything, because I thought he was going to pound me flat in righteousness. <laughs> he says, you know what? I go to Mass twice a day. Nobody can tell me that I'm not righteous. Well, okay. Judgment divides Outward obedience from inward devotion. When your thoughts are revealed, what will they reveal? Now at the same time, Anna appears, verse 36. Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years, who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Okay, so here comes another lady. And she is a prophetess. It's Anna in, in the New Testament, but it would be Hannah in Hebrew. And she, like it says here, is a prophetess. There's no respecter of persons with God. She's a woman. And the Holy Spirit is upon her just like Simeon. She's in agreement with God. She is utterly submitted to him. She's advanced in years. If you figure that she was maybe 15 years old when she got married, and she lived with her husband for seven years, and then he died, she was 22. And then she's a widow for 84 years. I'll do the math. That makes her 106 years old right now. 
And she comes up, not very quickly, but she comes up and gives thanks to the Lord as well. Now, you know, it says here that she did not depart from the temple. Uh, that's a little exaggerated. I don't think she would have been permitted to actually have a place in the temple to live. But the direction of her life was such that she was there every day as much as she could be. And she's worshiping God and she's praying and fasting. And she is waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Same thing that Simeon's waiting for. Just another way to put it. And she comes up to this couple and the child and Simeon, and she knows it too. And she begins to tell everyone looking for the redemption of Jerusalem, he's here. It's about to happen. It's happening right now. Nobody has ever seen a 106-year-old lady this excited. But man, she is skipping around. And she'll tell you, I've seen him. He's here. It's going to happen. Now, some people could look at this and say, is this a life? Is this how you live your life? Well, she's 106 years old, you know. This is about all she's got. So, okay. Um, what does she say? She says, I've just seen the Messiah. What a life. This is worth my whole life to see him and to know that God is true. This is fabulous. And she understands that her life is to live as a bond slave of God, to pour out her life serving him. And then she gets the desire of her heart. Here she has been praying and longing for the Messiah, and there he is. So she would agree, what else is there in life? Like it says in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you, O Lord? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my life and my portion forever. This is what life is about. All right. Now we're going to see the devotion of Jesus in the only glimpse we get of his childhood. Verse 39. So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. 
So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now, the point to this episode here is not that wires got crossed. And somehow Jesus didn't get the memo, we are leaving now. It's not that he must have wandered off because he's a 12-year-old and what's he going to do? You know, have some fun and totally miss things. This is not about any of that stuff. It just turns out that Jesus was alone in Jerusalem and the parents don't know about it. And they only find out at the end of the day when they're looking for him and can't find him. Nobody's seen him. Shock. We got to go back to Jerusalem. So that takes another day. And after that, three more days. Parents looking for a kid. This is the one that dumps a gallon of adrenaline into your bloodstream, and they do it for three days. They're pretty wound up, and they're freaked out. Because what? What intrigued Jesus? What so took his attention that he sort of missed that we're taking off? What is he doing? Now, if he was kidnapped, you know, that we're totally in trouble. We're hoping it doesn't come to that. But, I mean, what could he be doing? And they're trying to rack their brains. What's a 12-year-old boy going to do in Jerusalem? And they do everything they can think of the first day. Nothing. And they finally have to give it up and say, we have to do this tomorrow. Now let's think. What could he be doing? Where could he be? And they do everything they can think of. And again, nothing. Three days. And they're going, what do we do? What do we do? Where could he be? And one of them says, well, I don't know. The last place I can think of is the temple. You think he could be there? I don't know. What else are we going to do? I mean, we've looked everywhere. Guess it can't hurt. Let's just look in the temple. So they go to the temple, and they see this crowd And they go over to this crowd, and it's all the teachers. And they're talking to Jesus. But they're not talking down to him. 
They're talking to him as an equal. He is talking to them as an equal. Now, you know, he's listening to them. He's listening to them because he's interested in them. You know what a teacher is? Somebody who learns God's law and his word so that he can teach others and enable them to know God and to walk with God. And when it comes to the Bible, that's something that takes your whole life. That's what these men have done. They have devoted their whole lives to understanding God's word and to teach it. Now, here is a 12-year-old boy talking with them. And you could start talking to a 12-year-old boy and say, well, isn't this cute? He has a religious sort of bent in him. He wants to play teacher. But that doesn't last because they listen to his questions and his answers and they realize, wow, this kid is deep. He has a tremendous understanding. And he's not just listening to us with respect, but he's asking us these questions in the way that a teacher would ask questions. That's different. You know, sometimes on a Friday night, somebody will ask me a question, and I get the impression, you know what, you already know the answer. And it's kind of like I'm being poked, like, do you know the answer? And in a way, this is how you teach somebody, is you ask them a question that makes them think and come to an answer. See, and Jesus is doing this. And a funny thing is, they know he does not come from their schools. He doesn't say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says that. He says, well, how does the text read to you? What does the text say? See, that's very different than their teaching. And yet he has this tremendous understanding. And he's asking them questions to get them to think. And these teachers of the law are saying, who is this boy? But they know one thing, definitely he is a teacher. He thinks like a teacher. He's got the depth. This is the product of your whole life. It's not an accident. This is some boy. Now Mary and Joseph interrupt this. And Mary is standard parent in this case. This is not the usual parent catches up to missing child meeting. You know how that goes. Even looking for you everywhere. Where have you been? I could kill you. I love you. So Mary plays standard parent. Son, why did you do this for, to us? We have been looking for you for three days. 
But Jesus does not play standard child. Jesus says, How come you took three days to find me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? That is the translation of these words here. A better translation is, my father's house. Like, really? Kind of to paraphrase what he told Philip later. Have I been with you 12 years, and yet you've not known me? There is nothing in Jerusalem that interests me except this place right here. I don't care about anything else, but I care about my Father's house with everything that I have in my body. Why did you guys think I would be anywhere else? See, but they don't understand this statement. Did you notice that? Verse 50. They don't get it. So Mary thinks about it, stores it up in her mind, but they don't get it. And you know what? Jesus is okay with the fact that they don't get it. Like that's not his big problem to make sure everybody understands me. Because when you're a bond slave, the only thing that matters is that you know God and God knows you. And so if everybody else doesn't get you, that's not a big deal. Because all you're supposed to do as a bond slave is know God and please him. So he lives with the fact that his folks don't get him. And lets that go. That's okay. I'm just going to submit to people who don't understand me at all. Isn't that interesting? Jesus had to put up with stuff like that. But see, this is humility. To be that bond slave of God, to submit to people who don't understand, it's all humility. So look at this. This is the kind of person who will utterly and completely finish our salvation because he's completely devoted to the Father. His food is to do the will of the one who sent him and to finish his work. There is no doubt about this. Now, we are sometimes in doubt if we're going to make it to heaven. Have you ever wondered about that? I do. Because I know I am not always devoted to following Jesus. And my main problem is that I run out of heart. It's not even that I can't do it. It's that I don't want to. That's a little scarier. It's kind of like, uh, I don't want to. You know, if I was scared to death, I could hop up and get going. But it's kind of like, eh, I don't want to. Doesn't that bug you? Now, nobody has to know this because I can still come to church and I can still do everything that I'm supposed to do as a pastor. 
And nobody has to know what are my thoughts in my heart. I can still look like I'm doing more for God than most people. But nobody knows that I've got a stinky heart. But you know, Jesus is still revealing the thoughts of our hearts. And he reveals them to us so that we can know this is what you're really made of. And he is set for the rise and fall of many in Israel and the world and us. And this is where we rise or fall. We fall when we say no to Jesus in our hearts. When we just check out and say no. Either I don't want to forgive that person. Or, I am not going to do this. I don't care if you tell me to do this. I'm still not going to do it. Or, I'm scared. What will happen if I do this? What will happen if I yield completely to Jesus and say, anything you want, you can have it? What is he going to do with me? Is he going to send me off to do something so that I get killed? Well, you know, I'm too young to die. I got a lot of life left in me. Why don't I wait until I am super old and there's nothing left to do, and then I will become an old saint. Here comes Rob. He's 106. What a seasoned saint of the Lord he is. Well, I can't see the television anymore, so I might as well pray, but I usually end up asleep. Well, look at Simeon and Anna. Here are two people who have given their lives to be bond slaves to God. Did they lose out? You know, one thing a bond slave of God gets is intimacy with God. You get to know God. And that is the major advantage. God does speak to you. He tells you things. He makes you promises. And he keeps them. And you're not going to fear death because it's the door to eternal life, not destruction. Here's Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. He is completely devoted to his father. Did he lose out? Actually, yes. He lost out huge by even leaving heaven and everything that it means to be God and being born as a baby. We can't even comprehend what he lost there. But then he grows up, does the will of God, gets crucified. 
He lost everything. Until, of course, the Father raised him from the dead, gave him all authority in heaven and earth, raised him to the highest place, and gave him everything, all the glory of God. See? So, Jesus, the bond slave of God, devoted to God, lost everything and received more back. So, do not be afraid to receive Jesus and to yield to him and say, behold, your bondservant, you can have all. You can have everything. And you don't think, well, I'm too young to die. Because, see, you've got more life to give him. You can give him more as a young person than you can as an old person. Don't be afraid to lose your life for Jesus. Because he will give you the crown of life, which he promised to those who love him with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, all their strength. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that it's never too late to surrender to you to yield to you. And we have to do it over and over again when we lose the plot and say, why am I doing this? And the reason is, is that Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. And therefore, we are to give ourselves to him that he might be Lord and Savior. And so, Heavenly Father, today we want to yield to you and pray that your Spirit would be upon us And that we would do what you're calling us to do. Help us to not count our lives dear to ourselves. We pray that you would deal with our fear of dying. Help us to die right now. And to get it over with. And to say, whatever you want, you can have it. Behold your bondservant.
be glorified in us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.